The homosexual community argues that their behavior is biologically appealing to them, that it comes just naturally to them, that that's the way they were made, that they're just going along with their natural desires. Well, they're right to some extent. It does come naturally out of your sinful, fallen nature. When the Apostle Paul wrote the letter to the Romans under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he did a masterful job in detailing the way of salvation. In a sense, he had to show people how it was that they were lost before he could show them how to be saved. And this is what we've been looking at this week on Search the Scriptures. Dr. Carl Brogy, the senior pastor at Community Bible Church of Beaufort, South Carolina, has been looking at the first chapter of Romans. Following Paul's introduction to his readers and his declaration of the power of the gospel to save sinners, he proceeded to show how the world around us provides evidence of a living God. Then in verses 23 to 32, which we are studying today, he proceeds to lay out the inherent sinful nature of mankind. How without any outside help, we tend to set up idols for ourselves. And when we put anything ahead of God, we begin to slide down a path of immorality. Let's join Pastor Carl as he begins a message entitled, Anatomy of a Sinner. As Christians, you and I will never fully appreciate our salvation until we begin to see our depravity. And that's one of the reasons Paul is taking the time to describe it for us here in Romans. We're commanded in 2 Peter chapter 3 and verse 18 to grow in the grace and knowledge of Christ. And part of growing in grace is to see what it is that you were when God saved you. In fact, once you are born again with a regenerated heart, with the mind of Christ, you have an ability to see truth and even your past sinfulness in a way that you never had. Now it is true that to some degree before you can be saved, you must understand something about the sin problem. In fact, there's nothing that will prevent people from becoming Christians more than their inability to see their problem and to come to grips with it. And unfortunately, today in evangelicalism, we try to convince people to receive Christ for the benefits that salvation can bring. Things like joy and peace and marital harmony and better children and more positive character. And while those things result as a person grows in Christ, that's not why we need Christ. Before we can see what God wants to do for us, we have to see what it is that we are by nature. We need to see what it is that God needs to save us from before we need to focus on what it is God wants to save us to. Christ Jesus, Paul wrote, came into the world to save sinners. To some of the Pharisees who thought they were righteous, Jesus said, it is not those who are healthy who need a physician, but those who are sick I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners. He did not mean, of course, by that epigram that some people are so righteous that they do not need salvation. He is simply saying there are some people who think they are righteous and therefore do not see their need. You go to a doctor when you admit you are ill. You will come to Christ when you see you are guilty. And that axiom applies in every realm of life. Deny the problem, nothing can be done about it. Admit the problem. And at once there's the possibility for a cure. We cannot convict people. We cannot artificially impose guilt feelings on an individual. That's the work of God the Holy Spirit. But he does use individuals. 
He uses people just like you and me as we pray and as we use the word of God. We become often the vessel that the spirit of God uses to bring about conviction. That would certainly be irresponsible on the part of a physician to acquiesce to the diagnosis of his patient when he knows that the diagnosis is inaccurate. And it's just as irresponsible for us to let unsaved people think that all is well when it's not. And so what Paul is doing here in Romans 1:18, all the way through chapter 3 and in verse 20, he's like a skilled surgeon and he's cutting us open to give us a picture of our spiritual anatomy. And in this section of scripture, he functions not just as a surgeon, but as a skilled lawyer. And so to show that we are deserving of the wrath of God, he's going to take the entire human race and break it down into different sections. And in each case, his procedure will be the same. He will show that everyone, whatever their setting, has some knowledge of God. And they have not lived up to that knowledge. And therefore, they are unequivocally guilty. And so he's going to confront every segment of society. And he begins with the hardcore pagan Gentile. And as America slides further and further away from our Judeo-Christian roots... What happens individually begins to happen corporately to a nation. And we are seeing that in our day. You say, Pastor, do you really think that the description in the last half of this chapter could become true of America? I know it will become true. Because the Bible tells me that there is a parallel between the first time Jesus came into the world and the second time he came into the world. And all you have to do is open your eyes and see the radical change that is unfolding. And 6,000 years of human history demonstrate that if a society declines long enough morally... Anarchy will reign. There will be economic collapse. It will bring more violence. And you'll be able to do absolutely nothing to lock out those problems. Romans chapter 1. We left off last week in verse 22. But I want to begin reading in verse 18 to give us a running start into the context. Follow along in your Bible. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Because that which is known about God is evident within them, for God made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that they are without excuse. For even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man and of birds and four-footed animals and crawling creatures. Therefore, God gave them over to the lust of their hearts to impurity so that their bodies would be dishonored among them. For they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them over to degrading passions. For their women exchanged the natural function for that which is unnatural. And in the same way also the men abandoned the natural function of the woman and burned in their desire toward one another, men with men, committing indecent acts and receiving in their own persons the due penalty of their error. And just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, God gave them over to a depraved mind to do those things which are not proper. Being filled with all unrighteousness, wickedness, greed, evil, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice. 
They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, arrogant, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, without understanding, untrustworthy, unloving, unmerciful. And although they know the ordinance of God, that those who practice such things are worthy of death, they not only do the same, but they also give hearty approval to those who practice them. Billy Graham spoke like a prophet when he said, the immutable law of sowing and reaping has held sway. We are not the hapless possessors of moral depravity. And we seek in vain for a cure. The tares of indulgence have overgrown the wheat of moral restraint. If you're a thinking person, you will understand Billy Graham's comment that our world is aflame with sin. And I hate to say it, but the picture of Romans 1 becomes more and more prevalent with every decade that goes by. And what we're looking at this morning is the judgment of God on a people and on individuals within that nation. A downward spiral into sin. Now, if you remember the context, in verses 1 through 17, the Apostle Paul has been talking about the gospel that he is not ashamed of because it is the power of God for salvation. And now, beginning in verse 18, he begins to address the need for the gospel by exposing the sinfulness of man. And what, again, we find in the last 15 verses is certainly as unpleasant as it is real. Look at verse 18 to remember the flow. He says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Please note, it's not the wrath of God that will be revealed, but the wrath of God that is revealed. We discussed last time that there are two dimensions to the wrath of God. There's the future dimension, what 1 Thessalonians 1 calls the wrath to come, and there is the present dimension that men are experiencing today. There's the future ultimate expression in the lake of fire. There's the present dimension when God gives people over into their sin. It's not a lightning bolt from heaven, but it's a dimension of the wrath of God that it is at work as people suppress the truth in unrighteousness. You say, well, what truth did they suppress, Paul? How are they suppressing the truth? Why is God presently, quietly pouring his wrath out on the culture in which we live. Verse 19 tells us, because that which is known about God is evident within them, for God made it evident to them. How has he made it evident to them? For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly one seen, two understood, how through what has been made so that they are without excuse. God's attributes, his power, his nature are seen through the things that he has made. It is visible and it is intelligible so that no one can have an excuse to stand on. Just as the artist reveals his nature, his ability to the things that he paints or sculpts, the divine artist reveals his nature through the things he has created. Some years ago, I was in St. Paul's Cathedral. A great fire in 1666 destroyed the cathedral and Sir, uh, Sir Thomas Wren rebuilt the place. Christopher Wren rebuilt it. And I went down into the crypt of that great cathedral, and there is the body of Sir Christopher Wren. And there's an inscription over his tomb. If you seek his monument, he wrote, look around you. So too, if you seek God, look around you at the things he has made. That's Paul's argument. 
No man, whether he's the agnostic, the atheist on the university campus, no man, whether he's in the steaming jungles of the Amazon or in the Arctic regions of the north, no man can say that he has no information or knowledge of God. All men have truth about God. And so it's important they know God, not in the saving sense. Don't misunderstand Paul's expression. They have a basic knowledge of God, of his existence, and that knowledge is enough, according to Paul, not to save them, but to condemn them. They're without excuse, verse 21. For even though they knew God, not in the sense we do, for eternal life is that they might know you, the only true God in Christ whom they have sent. But they knew God in terms of his existence. For even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks. Instead, Paul tells us, they became futile in their speculations and their foolish heart was darkened. When a man has light and he suppresses the light God has given him, then God takes away the light of that revelation. It is not what some liberal theologians, when they look at a man in idolatry, saying, well, that's just another form of worship. He has an enlightened heart. No, God says just the opposite. He has a foolish heart. He has a darkened heart. It's what we discussed last time as we looked at the words of the Savior in John 12. For a little while longer the light is among you. Walk while you have the light so that darkness will not overtake you. He is the light of the world. When they ignored the revelation he was giving those people in his day, then darkness was going to envelop them. And indeed it did for most of the people that he addressed there on that occasion. It's a dangerous thing to be exposed to the truth of God and to ignore it. And let me say by application to those of us who know Christ as our Savior, the same is true when you hear truth and you do nothing with it. It's a dangerous thing. Jesus said in John 14, He who has my commandments and keeps them is the one who loves me. And the one who loves me will be loved by my Father and I will love him and will disclose myself to him. Do you know why some of us have lost our zeal and our zest and our passion to know the scripture and we open it and we have some kind of a quiet time and it's boring and it's not fulfilling and it's not life changing and God is not speaking to us? Because we're not obeying the truth that we know. Obey what you know and you will grow and God will reveal more of himself to you as you respond to it. Paul's point here in Romans 1 is that these people did not respond to the truth of God in creation and in conscience. And so God gave them over to a darkened mind. And a darkened heart always results in a distorted behavior. And so in verses 22 to 32, where we want to pick up this morning, he gives three expressions of a darkened heart in a decaying society. If you're taking notes, the very first expression of a life and a society that is sliding from God is what I'm calling this morning the delusion of idolatry. The delusion of idolatry. Look now at verse 22. Professing to be wise, they became fools. You see, that's the delusion of it. They think they're smart. They think they're intelligent. But God says, no, you're not wise at all. Because you've suppressed the truth, you've become a fool. And so he says in verse 23, as he expresses that foolishness, they exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man and of birds and four-footed animals and crawling creatures. 
The Bible is expressing just one form of idolatry for us. And let me hasten to say that even this form of idolatry is not limited to the first century. Missiologists tell us that somewhere around two and a half billion people on the planet still express this form of idolatry. But understand too that idolatry is broadened in the epistles to go beyond worshiping a statue or a man. Jot down next to verse 23, if you would, Colossians 3 and verse 5. Colossians 3 and verse 5. Biblically speaking, an idol is anything you love more than God, anything you serve more than God, and anything that you fear more than God. And so Paul said to the church at Coloss, when Christ who is our life is revealed, then you also will be revealed with him in glory. Therefore, consider the members of your earthly body as dead to immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and greed, which amounts to idolatry. Do you see what Paul is saying? He said people who love and serve their fleshly desires, specifically immorality, impurity, evil desire, and greed, are involved in a form of idolatry. And in God's economy, idolatry invites judgment. And so he says in the next verse, For it is because of these things that the wrath of God will come upon the sons of disobedience. Now unlike animals, people are made in the image of God. And intrinsic within man is a desire to worship. Man is instinctively religious. Wherever you go in the world, you will find people worshiping. And if a person suppresses the truth that God has given in creation and conscience concerning the one true God, then they will worship a false God, one that they've created in their own mind. Now remember, Paul is writing to the Romans, and he's actually in the city of Corinth. If, as we learned in our first introductory message to this series, he's in the city of Corinth when he writes it. In both Rome and Corinth, the cities are covered over with all kinds of idolatry. People worshiping things, animals, men, etc. They would erect temples, houses of worship, and there they would erect a, flaw, a frog or a bird or some four-footed animal or man, and they would bow down and they would worship. You say, Pastor, how utterly pagan. We are so much more sophisticated than they. Are we? One of the gods that they worshipped in the city of Rome was called Mammon, the god of wealth and possessions, and that Greek word has come directly into our English language. You say, do we worship that God today? We may not call him mammon, but the truth is, is that there are some people whose whole commitment and focus in life is the acquisition of more. It's what Paul just called in Colossians 3, 5, greed. And it is the principal problem for the worldwide economic disaster that man is now facing. Nothing wrong with riches unless you love those riches more than God. And if you do, then you're serving the God of mammon, and that God will shape your character. You see, when a man chooses to suppress the truth that God has given him, then that truth is going to be replaced with something else. And whether it's a person who literally physically molds an idol or creates an idol in his own heart, he is going to begin to be molded by that idol. First the man molds the idol and then the idol molds the man. That's how it works. And so whatever you give your affections to, whatever you worship, you will become like. If you worship the Lord Jesus Christ and give your affections to him and seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, you will become more Christ-like in your character.
Another so-called god they worshipped back in Rome was the god Bacchus. He was the god of wine, the god of drink. And since they loved to drink, they said, let's make a god and worship that god. And they erected a magnificent temple of whose uh, remains still are with us to this day. You say, do we have that god in America? We certainly do. Billions of dollars are spent just in advertising, much less the 20 billions in the possession of promoting this particular God. We even have temples. Some people do their drinking in their houses. Other people go to little places we call bars. They had another God in Athens. That God's name was Aphrodite or Venus. She was the goddess of sexual love and physical beauty. She was a sex goddess that stood for licentiousness and lust. And people would literally go into her temple as an act of worship with the temple prostitutes. They would engage in immorality. You say, Pastor, do we have that goddess in America today? The whole pornographic industry is built on that god. The public schools in America are enticing our children to give our allegiance to that god. And millions of Americans every night put their affections on movies they download, things they rent, programs they watch, things that they listen to that are based on this God. Then there's another goddess that was available in both Corinth and in the city of Rome. It was the goddess Sophia. It comes from the Greek word sophos. It comes into English as sophisticated. The Athenians worshipped the goddess of learning, which may seem honorable, Unless that learning replaces true learning, true wisdom that comes from Jehovah God. And so when a man supplants the truth of God, he creates an idol. And many of our universities are committed to worshiping this goddess. We call it intellectualism. Their Bible is their science textbooks. Their, their salvation is the progress of man. And their, their heaven is the plastic utopia that they're trying to create. Now it seems the more that we talk about our wisdom in America, the more we are falling apart as a nation. We don't call her Sophia, but we think somehow that we are smarter than our founders were. That their ideas were puritanical, old-fashioned, and antiquated, and we need to come up to a day of intellectualism. And that's the kind of world that Jesus came into. He came like a bright light in the midst of darkness when the prophet describes his first coming. And he will come to the same kind of world when he comes again. And so we read in verse 22, professing to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image and the form of corruptible man, of birds, four-footed animals, crawling creatures. Therefore... God gave them over to the lust of their hearts and purity so that their bodies might be dishonored among them. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie. They worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. And Paul says, Amen. Now, beyond the delusion of idolatry, I want you to see beginning in verse 26 that God unfolds for us the distortion of immorality. The distortion of immorality. Notice how verse 26 begins. For this reason. For what reason? For the reason I just read and reread a second ago in verse 25. Because they exchanged the truth of God for a lie. For this reason, God gave them over to degrading passions. Literally, the Greek text says, passions of dishonor. Some people have the idea that 
if we don't get right, that God is going to judge us. Friends, I want to tell you that sexual perversion is the judgment of God. When God takes his hand off of an individual, or when God takes his hand off of a nation, they become part of the judgment of God. Remember, Paul is not speaking of the wrath of God here that will be revealed, but the wrath of God that is being revealed. Verse 26, for this reason, God gave them over to degrading passions. For their women exchanged the natural function for that which is unnatural. We call that lesbianism. And when people reject natural revelation, natural law, as the medieval theologians described it, Thomas Aquinas and others, then we are given over to unnatural sexual perversion. And in the same way, the men also abandoned the natural function of the women and burned in their desire toward one another. Men with men committing indecent acts and receiving in their own persons the due penalty of their error. We call that male homosexuality. And it's obvious as you look around America today that there's an increasing tolerance and an encouragement for this lifestyle. Forty years ago this behavior was illegal in all 50 states. Now we have written laws to condone it. And the homosexual community argues that their behavior is biologically appealing to them. That it comes just naturally to them. That that's the way they were made. That they're just going along with their natural desires. Well, they're right to some extent. It does come naturally out of your sinful fallen nature. And God calls that behavior unnatural. It's not part of his original design. And so he goes on, and, and let me just say parenthetically, God doesn't say in his word, listen, I'm speaking out of the heterosexual community. Lusting is natural. Fornication, premarital sex is natural. Extramarital sex is natural, so it's okay. He doesn't say, well, since coveting, the acquisition of things and the love of things is natural, I understand. Should a man be allowed to rape, commit pedophilia, commit bisexuality, behavior, be involved in bestiality, fornication, adultery, because it comes natural to him and he finds it biologically pleasing and alluring to him? Listen, if you don't get anything else out of this sermon, don't miss this. All sin comes naturally. Every one of us has a wicked, fallen, depraved nature. A person is no more born a homosexual than he's born a liar, a cheat, a murderer, adulterer, or anything else you can think of. He chooses to commit adultery. He chooses to rape. He chooses to ponder over pornographic material. He chooses to get drunk. But make no mistake how God describes this. In verse 26, he calls this a degrading passion. Again, literally a passion of dishonor. We have children's books in our own public library right here in our county that call this behavior natural. You better know what your kids are pulling off the shelf. It's true in books, all, libraries all across America today. On our next Search the Scriptures, Dr. Berge will continue his look at the Apostle Paul's argument that man, through his sinful nature, is getting progressively perverted with each generation. And short of a spiritual revival, man is actually doomed. Our message is entitled, Anatomy of a Sinner, 
and it is the fifth message in our series from the Book of Romans. If you'd like to listen to this or any of Dr. Brogy's messages, download the Search the Scriptures app from your app store or visit the website searchthescriptures.org. You can also order a CD or DVD by calling 877-787-7478. Don't forget the trip to Israel scheduled for October has been rescheduled to May of 2022. This will give you added time to participate if you've not already signed up. But you do need to register by February. Visit stsisraeltour.com for complete details. Tomorrow, Pastor Carl's wife, Audrey, is in this time slot with her program for women, Mothering from the Heart. And when we return Monday, we'll continue our trip down the Romans Road as we search the Scripture. 